me open us up in some prayer. God, we thank you that you are with us today. Um, we surrender our hearts to you. We surrender our minds to you. We ask for you to just fill us in this moment, uh, that we would be open to hear your truth, that we would be transformed by your love, um, that we would learn how to do our marriages in great ways that honor you, that we would learn the forgiveness, the grace that is necessary. Um, and whatever the particular story is you want to tell us about our lives, about what we need to change, about what we need to accept, we ask you to do that. So we come with humility, but we come expectant in Christ's name. Amen. All right, so welcome to week five of the Narrative of Marriage series. This is the last one. So if you've missed some, I know some of them are online. I think all of them so far are online. You can check them out there. But we'll just do a quick summary to kind of set the stage for what we're going to close out with today. So we started week one. We talked about the story of us. Looking back at how did we get here? What exactly are we doing in our marriages so far? What's working well? What's not working well? And the narrative idea, we were saying this is the setting of the story, looking around and saying, where are we? Is this where we want to be? Okay. Taking the time to slow down and evaluate that. In the second, second week, we talked about the story of relationship itself. How do we do this? We looked at some psychological models. We looked at a biblical model to say, what are we supposed to be doing? Put some thoughts out there about that. In the third week, we talked about the story no one wants to tell or conflict. Certainly the old trite saying, you know, there's no growth without conflict, which is true. But reframing how we do conflict in the idea of how do we tell that story well? How do we seek to understand the other person first so our conflict can actually take us somewhere productive? Then in the fourth week, last week, we looked at the heart of the story, thinking what is the essence of marriage? So again, back to that narrative structure, the setting is, hey, here's where we are. The plot is what we're supposed to do. Conflict is what moves the story along. And then the characters are what it's really about. So looking at the heart of the story is our own personal development through Christ. Helping the other person develop in their relationship with Christ. Living out the gospel in the way that we do relationship. That's the essence of the story. And in the midst of that, learning to accept them, learning to rejoice in them with the ups and downs. And that brings us to today's topic which the, the title I think I put on when I originally did this was The Storyboard of, of Marriage. You know what a storyboard is? Anybody out there? Yes, I see. Can you explain it to us? It's the way to teach. You have pictures that um, basically tell the story. It's kind of like a comic. There you go. Yeah, that's exactly it. So some pictures that sort here's the summary of the first part, here's the second part, so visually you can see it, and then... All those pictures together make up the story. Ah, I, I see what this is about. So if someone is you know, selling a, a film in Hollywood, they're probably showing you a storyboard to say, this is where it's going. See how interesting this is? And we're thinking about our marriages today. Is it, is it going anywhere? Do our relationships, even outside of marriage, do they have a purpose? Is there a direction? Or the other word I'm using for this, is there, is there a theme to it? Or is it just, you go, you live, you die? Is there something else more valuable? So today we're looking at the theme and the direction of the marriages. And as I was thinking about this, I couldn't help, because we have this 13-month-old baby now. I brought in some of the books that we read these days, just to kind of show you what happens with our life. So there's a great one called, Where is Baby's Belly Button? Anybody's ever seen this, of course. 
essentially the synopsis of this is a small child learns to locate body parts, right? Hey, where is baby's mouth? Oh, it's behind the cup, right? So you read through and they find all their body parts, including, of course, the aforementioned belly button. That's a fun one to read. Then we've got something even simpler, the touch and feel kitten, right? It's very nice. If there's a synopsis here, it's the animals are nice to touch. Isn't that interesting, right? <clears throat> then you get a slightly more complicated with the old classic Goodnight Moon. I'm sure probably almost everybody has seen this one before. And if there's a synopsis here, it's that there are a lot of things to say goodnight to. <laughs> and they all rhyme in the end, too. Goodnight clocks and goodnight socks, right? So, all right, we got that one going on. And then I was kind of troubled by uh, <clears throat> this last book, The Very Hungry Caterpillar. Everybody know this one? Yeah. Have you looked deeply into this? It's, it's a little it's disturbing at times. So it starts off pretty regular. There's this caterpillar, and he's, he's pretty hungry. So he starts eating. And then day one that Monday, he says, I'll have an apple. Good start. Dietitians would approve of this. Then he says, I'm going to have a couple of pears. But you'll notice he starts eating progressively more things. It's still within the fruit and vegetable family, so you think it's fine. But you get to the weekend, and he seems to develop an eating disorder all of a sudden. <laughs> I mean, we've got everything imaginable to man up here, except for maybe some Cracker Jacks and Pop Rocks. But he probably added those on and then went to uh, Flip Burger for a Krispy Kreme milkshake just to add another couple thousand calories at the end. Saying, what? He's just on a full-on binge here. And then he says, you know what, I've changed my mind, I'm going to restrict, I'll have a salad on Sunday, my last day, and then I blow up real big, and then I turn into a, a, a butterfly, right? What? Okay. I mean, I get it, we're teaching about, but what, what are our kids learning from this? So I thought about all the stories that we, we tell our kids and the themes that are involved in those, and then I started thinking about my wife singing to our little Sophie, and of course, you know, you're singing some of the traditional songs that people like to sing to their kids. Like, like uh, Ring Around the Rosary, right? Ring Around the Rosy. And so I was like, well, let's see, it's a catchy little jingle, you know, kids dancing around in circles. And then I did a little research. Well, where does this come from? And so here's a theory that's out there. This actually comes from the Black Plague, right? So supposedly the Ring Around the Rosy, notice the, the pointing signs, are the uh, red sores that develop when you get the Black, black Plague. This is a good thing to sing about with kids. A pocket full of posies, actually, I think he's throwing some of those up in the, in, the, in the side, is that the notion was certain herbs and flowers and stuff would ward off the spread of this disease, prevent contagion from happening. So you'd walk around with all these things in your pocket so you wouldn't get sick and die. And then, of course, you'd have the doctors that would treat these people who were dressed something like this. Right? It looks like something out of a horror film. So they'd have these long snouts where they would put these different herbs and flowers so that that's what they would be breathing in. I'm sure that was fun for them. So they could treat people and not actually get sick themselves, right? So you've got the, the, the rosy, all the sores, the pocket full of posies to protect it, the ashes to ashes, right? So that's either the cremation of the bodies or one uh, version said this is like the sound of the sneeze, like a chew. And then, of course, we all fall down because we are, in fact, no longer alive. Okay. <laughs> We're teaching our children well. And then, of course, you've got the itsy-bitsy spider. Everybody know this one? This is a step up because you've got the hand gestures, right? You know, the itsy-bitsy spider. I always can be, there we go. Climbs up the water spout. Down comes the rain and it washes the spider out. Out comes the sun and dries up all the rain. And the itsy-bitsy spider 
went up the spout again. So I thought about this. I'm like, what is happening here? Right? We're chronicling the adventures of this very small arachnid. Now, this is not some large, scary, giant tarantula. This is like the underdog. And what does he want to do? He just wants to get up to the top. And what happens? The rain comes and he knocks him down. And then, oh, just when you think he's given up, he's going to go somewhere else. A little bit of hope comes in. Sun comes out, things start to clear up. You think, maybe I can make it. And he tries again, and then you sing the song again, and he just goes back down the rain spout. Right? It's like we're teaching our children a modern-day myth of Sisyphus. Right? Sisyphus condemned by the gods to roll a rock up the hill, only to have it roll back down. So then you can make a nice Bible study out of this, read from Ecclesiastes, meaningless, meaningless, everything is utterly meaningless, and then call it a day. Right? What's going on with these stories that we're teaching our kids? Right? Now, the truth is, despite wasting five or ten minutes on that, I'm not actually here to analyze children's nursery rhymes. We're going to talk about this in the context of the theme of what we're doing in our relationships, using some of those examples as a foil for that. With our marriages, I find we often fall into one of these traps. Now, the first one is we want the marriage that's simple and easy like these children's books. We touch the kitty, right? It's great. It's fun. You know, we go on picnics. Everything is good. And where's baby's belly button? We have kids. So then we get upset, sort of like we talked about last week. We experience profound disappointment. We experience frustration. Maybe we have a sense of disillusionment when it doesn't go the way that we want it to be. So one error is we spend our lives trying to make our marriages have a different theme than they actually have. The theme of comfort, the theme of easiness, the theme that things go just as I want. Or, if we do get all these things, right? We get married, it's great, we go on lots of vacations, we have plenty of money, and then we die. We can go into stagnation. We're not growing. We're not becoming somebody different because we have just what we want. Or we have what we want, but our partner's dreams have been neglected, and so they're sort of over there wallowing, and we think we're doing okay. So the first trap is to say, I insist upon an easy theme to this story. It has to be simple. It has to work. It has to be joyful and content, or else something's going wrong, and we can get caught in that trap. Hey, Mimi. <laughs> Second danger goes back to the Black Plague uh, theme there, is we get stuck seeing the theme of the darkness and the negativity in our relationships. This is hopeless. We're not getting anywhere. There's just death and destruction. We're, we're, we're in a cycle that's not going to change. I don't think anything is going to be better. And all I see basically are, you know, these, this is like my partner. They're like the doctor coming to treat me. I don't want to be treated. We're just getting sick. Things are getting worse. So I get into a state of hopelessness. There's the second danger. Or a third that I see, the theme can become we get lost in the daily grinds. We're busy raising our kids, getting them to school, getting them tutors, taking them to soccer practice, taking them to the doctor, trying to earn money to pay for all this, trying to find time to connect for five minutes at the end of the day. So much busyness, we get lost and things start to seem futile. Are they really going anywhere? Is there really a purpose to this? And this is kind of like the itsy-bitsy spider piece. Like, I, I don't know that we're getting anywhere. So those are the dangers, some of the traps that we can fall into. Let me ask you, I'm not going to ask anybody to share anything here, but I just want you to take a minute and just think about your own relationships. Don't say anything. But if you had to analyze it, look at it and say, is there, is there a theme 
to what we've been doing in our marriage so far? Is there a sense of direction? Is it just kind of lost? Am I living selfishly? Just without saying anything, think about your marriage and think, what, what would I say the theme is up to this point? I'm going to give you a minute just to think about that. Okay. So a little bit, that's like taking stock of where we are. I'm going to propose a couple of ideas. My, my point today is not to give you a complete outline of this should be the theme of your marriage. I think that's an exploration process. I'm going to offer some hints. I'm going to give you some ideas, hopefully something to, to play around with and to think about. We're going to start with um, John Gottman. I've talked about him a few times. This is a researcher out in Washington State. Here's a model that he's come up with, and I'm going to just walk through this. I think you'll see some of the themes we've talked about already within this. So he starts, I'm probably blocking some of the people over here, the very bottom of this, he said, build love maps. And what this means is get to know your partner. What are their likes? What are their dislikes? What's, what's the wounding from their past that they've been through? What are their hopes? What, 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 what charges them up? What turns them off? Do I know this person well? Going back to the conflict discussion, do I understand them? Right? What they're about. So can I build this love map? And then second, this sharing fondness and admiration. If you remember from, I think, a couple of times ago, we need this five-to-one ratio of positive statements to negative statements within any relationship for it to be stable. When you get below that, you increase the risk of divorce, you increase the risk of dissatisfaction. So here, this is simply, I'm going to be intentional about sharing what I appreciate about you. I'm going to build you up in this way. So not only do I think, I'm, I'm training my brain to think positively, I'm going to share it with you. So we have this whole culture of fondness and admiration. I tell you what I like about you. Then the third, the turning towards instead of away. Okay, this connects in a little bit with conflict, which is coming later, but in every moment, there are opportunities either to turn back towards the partner and engage, or to turn away and disengage, or the, the, there's a third one here, to turn against and just to fight, in a sense of, I, I want to win this, not in a sense of, I want to fight through. So a simple question to say, what's the theme? Am I turning away from this person because I'm disappointed, I'm hurt, or am I using it as an opportunity to turn back towards them? Then the fourth one here, this positive perspective. If you remember from, I think, the first time we talked about a, a basic state that relationships fall into. You can either be in what's called positive sentiment override or negative sentiment override. In positive sentiment override, which of course is where you'd like to be, I am viewing you as a person who is worthy of my love. I think your motives are generally good. I know that you're a sinner, you're going to make mistakes, but you would like our relationship to be the best that it can. So when something goes wrong, I assume you're just having a bad moment, or you're probably trying to do the right thing, or maybe stress got the better of you, but at the core, I believe in your character. I really believe you're trying, versus the danger of negative sentiment override, where I, I just believe that you are selfish and self-interested and are doing this for your own benefit. Now I'm seeing you through a lens of negativity. Even when you do something positive, I'm going to interpret it in a negative way. Okay? It's, it's the middle point. It's the turning point of all this. If you're in negative sentiment override and you stay there for a long time, you're done. You're done. If you get in a positive sentiment override, you can, you can conquer lots of stuff. And we didn't really talk about this in here, but the, the biggest way to build a positive perspective is those bottom three, developing the friendship and the relationship. We didn't go into details about doing that. But if you find yourself in that negative sin and override, one solution is go back and think, how do we rebuild this friendship? 
How can we do that? Okay, let me keep going through this because lots more to go after this. But uh, step five is managing conflict, doing this well, understanding their perspective, accepting influence from your partner, letting them change you. Don't be that that person who's entrenched, um, and learning to calm yourself down when you get worked up. And then the last two, six and seven, kind of connecting with what we're talking about today. And they sound really cheesy, like we're in a Disney movie or something. Making life dreams come true and then creating shared meaning. So this sixth one, making life dreams come true. Gottman actually finds a lot of the perpetual arguments we get into come down to someone who has a dream or a vision and it's getting blocked somehow. And that's why they're in gridlock. I'm not willing to let go of this because it's that important. And you haven't understood why this is important to me. And then the last one here, creating shared meaning, meaning not just an individual, but together as a couple, this is what we're trying to do. Here's the direction we're trying to go. There's more to us as two fighting this battle than just one and one fighting this battle. There is a common mission, a common purpose together. So this is, this is Gottman's idea. He says, if, if you do this, you, know, you can move forward. Let's think about the themes we've talked about. On the side here, you see it says trust and commitment. Now, this is not originally part of his model. It's something that's added on. Uh, we've talked about the notion of connection. Right? Going back to the Genesis account, it's not good for man to be alone. The connection with God, but of course, the connection with your spouse, the connection with friends. We've got that theme. We've talked about understanding each other. We talked about acceptance. I'm going to put two more out there. Remember, this is not me proposing the model you have to follow, but saying these are probably themes of healthy active, growing, and I would say Christ-centered relationships. So bear with me another moment. We're going to talk about the themes of trust and commitment. Now, if I ask you, how, how do you think trust is built in a relationship? What do you think are some of the ways you would build trust? Following through? Following through? Sure. Yeah. You said you're going to do something, you did it. So I can trust that. It's a good one. Others, how would you build trust? Honesty. Honesty? Absolutely. So when you say something, I know that it's real. right? And I know, I would add on to that, you're not hiding something, you're not deceiving. There's just a level of honesty present. Absolutely. Other things that strike you. Support. 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 Yeah, absolutely. This, I think this goes back to our last talk too. Like I, I'm there for you. If it's important to you, it's important to me too. And so then as that develops, I, I know I can trust you to be there for me. That's a good one. Others that strike you. Communication. Communication. Yeah, and not to put you on the spot, but like I think that's right. How, how would you see communication building that trust? I am... I think it's a fantastic point. I, I did put you on the spot. Sorry, <laughs> sorry about that. But that's what happens. We have these assumptions going on in our brains. But if we have that communication, you can clear those up, get back on the same page, and keep that trust flowing. That's good. Let, let me show you some of the ones from the research. And, and I think all the ones you said are, are actually on the list. Okay, the first one is what they call congruence. And that just means what I say and what I do are the same. Right? So if I'm telling you, baby, I, I love you, I'm here for you, whatever you need, I'm going to do it, and then I go act in a selfish way, and I don't support you, there's no congruence between my words and my actions. 
So the question is, am I going to be congruent? Do I say what I mean? Second one is following through, like you said. Third one, consistency over time. Right? Everybody can promise something and deliver for a week. A common complaint of couples that I'll see in my psychological practice is, oh yes, you said this, and he did it for like four days, and then it just kind of began to fade off, and then in a month we were back to the exact same place that we were when we started. I don't trust your consistency over time. You're going to react to me being upset, but is that it? Or will there be a consistency with follow-through? With a consistency, trust is built. Visible sacrifice. Right, if I see that my partner is doing something that maybe costs them something, but it's for my benefit, then I can trust the character. Confession and humility. I think someone said that out there. I'm willing to own my own faults and not always be defensive. Granting forgiveness. We don't, we don't have time to get into all this today, but this is, this is a huge one. In this process, you are going to encounter a sinful human being. You are going to be a sinful human being. He or she is going to wound you, and you're going to wound them back. Do I have the humility to confess and let my sin be known and ask for you to forgive me, to put myself in that vulnerable position? And do I also have the humility to grant you the forgiveness, knowing you're probably going to wound me again? Now, now we're not talking about, say, active drug addiction and turning a blind eye. We're not talking about that stuff, but the day-to-day just life events where you are going to get wounded. Do I have the grace and humility to grant and ask for forgiveness? And then uh, living for higher principles. There's something, there's something bigger than me. But let me throw out one more that, that you may not think about. We'll just touch base on, and we don't have a lot of time to get into it today, but the, the research shows the number one to build, way to build trust is what's called emotional attunement. Emotional attunement. And in my life now with our, with our small child, I see this all the time because how do you communicate with a child? They make a sound and you make the same sound back or they go bah! and they do this. And so you go, ah! you do the same thing back that says, I see what you're doing. I'm responding in kind. I'm in tune with where you are. Right? Rejoice with those who rejoice. Mourn with those who mourn. Right? The support idea. I, I'm, I'm with you. If you're going through pain, I'm not just going to tell you, oh, go do this and make it better. I'm going to, I'm going to enter into that pain with you. I'm emotionally in tune with you. Right? Or if you're happy, I'm not going to say, well, yeah, you're having a good day, but I've got all this problem going on. I'm not going to try to pull you down. Maybe I can rejoice with you. I can be in tune with the emotions that you're experiencing. Okay? What they found, again, I'm just giving the little nuggets here, is this is critical for child-rearing and it's critical for your marriage. Right? And they, they do research showing that, especially for husbands, because men sometimes have difficulty with this area, if they can be in tune with the emotion their child is experiencing, they can acknowledge it, they can give the child the space to feel it, not to fix them right away, not to change it, to make sure they're being respectful and all these things, but to let them experience the emotion and show them that they care and they're just with them in it. You have kids that grow up with more self-confidence, they become more successful, you kind of go on down the list, positive results versus wanting to get rid of the emotion to just get on to whatever state you want to be in. Those kids don't do so well. And the research also shows if you can do that, you can do the same thing with your spouse. And when you do that thing with your spouse, they feel connected, they feel loved, they feel safe, which really is answering that, that question that we said is big. Are, are, you, 
Are you there for me? This is probably the real trust question. Are you there for me? Can I count on you? If you're emotionally attuned, then you can do that. Let me go to that other, other theme about commitment. Now, there's actually two kinds of commitment in the research literature. The first one is not the most fun kind of commitment. It's what's called constraint commitment. So it's the things that hold you back so it's not so easy to just jump out of a relationship. Now you've got your moral constraints. Well, we, we took this vow together. We believe theologically that you know we, we're in a covenant relationship, so I don't want to leave. I'm worried about the well-being of our kids if we leave. All these things that kind of hold you from just making a rash decision and jumping out. You've got the pragmatic constraints. All our finances are completely mixed together. We've got a house that we're, we're both on the mortgage for. I don't know that we could live alone. We've got all these things. We've got things that hold us together. I think I talked about my dog Millie and falling in love with her as I was falling in love with Jenny. And she used to joke early in the relationship that like, I think Millie is the only reason you stay in this marriage. That would be an example of a constraint commitment. Leave Jenny, there's no Millie. You know, stay with Jenny, I get Millie. Not that that's why I really stayed, of course. But those are all constraint commitments. They're put there so that when we think we want to bug out, we don't. It keeps us there long enough to actually get to the meat of what's going on and to grow. Now, the second part of this is what's called personal dedication commitment. And this is, I'm committed because I enjoy being with you. We fill each other up. It's fun. It's fulfilling. It's life-giving. This is also the sense of agape love that we talked about. Remember our, our relationship progression from last week, getting to that authentic love. I'm going to love you in spite of your flaws because this is the kind of person that I want to be. Within this personal dedication, there's also a transition from a sense of me to a sense of we. Uh, There's a sense of satisfaction with sacrifice. I'm okay that I had to give up another day of golf. I'm okay that I had to give up spending this much money, this much freedom, because I'm doing this for you. I see the value in you. I'm dedicated to you, and that's why I do it. One last thing to note here is in this personal dedication commitment, there's a sense of the long-term view. It's not about today or tomorrow. It's about the next 10 years, 20 years, 30 years. It's about our legacy. So the commitment piece, the trust, right? I'm going to be there, follow through. I'm emotionally in tune. We want that theme to be present in our marriage. And then this commitment. I'm here for you. Yes, there are things that make me stay here, but also I'm choosing to be dedicated to you for the long haul. Okay, I think I've got time for this for our transition to the last piece. Four practical ways to live out that theme of the commitment. Number one is to put your spouse in that priority role above anything else outside of your relationship with Christ. That shows them the value that they have. Number two, then, is to actively live that out. It's kind of why I put you on the spot about communication. We, we can think these things but we don't express them. We don't say them. And then nothing is cleared up. So if I'm prioritizing you, but I'm not pursuing you through conversation, through doing things together, there's no action behind my emotions. And it just doesn't get anywhere. But if I put the action behind it, you can see it. If I think a positive thought and I say it, that can build you up. If I think it and neglect to say it, nothing happens. So number one, you are the top priority. Number two, I'm showing you you're the top priority. Number three, I'm realizing... Everything we have is shared together. What's mine is yours. What's yours is mine. Everything is a team. So I'm eliminating this sense of just me over here 
and just you over there, right? The commitment is everything is together, okay? And then the fourth one is essentially this notion we've been talking about of pure vulnerability and the courage to share with each other. Think about the commitment that is involved there. If I, if I share my deepest parts with you, you can hurt me the worst. So there's nothing that speaks commitment more than I'm going to take that risk to be vulnerable where you can reject me, you can wound me, but I'm going to put it out there anyway. And I'm going to work to be the kind of person that you can put your deepest stuff out there and I'm not going to reject you. Right? Four different ways you can live out the commitment. And since this is a talk about stories, I've got to show you one more video. And actually, let me go ahead and press this, because this one you can't see unless I turn the lights all the way off. <clears throat> this is actually a scene from a movie called Signs. Anybody ever see this movie? It's actually a movie about an alien invasion, which of course is appropriate for a marriage talk. Um, <laughs> And in this scene, you've got this Mel Gibson character who was a priest and he gave up his priesthood after his wife was killed in a random car accident. And he's rejected God. He's very bitter. He does not see God being there for him. Uh, he's got his two kids. You've got the daughter there. You'll see the son in, the sec in a second. And that's his brother who's given up his uh, life to come move in with him to help during this transition time. Now, in the, in the course of this movie now, something's happening. There are these saucers in the sky. They don't know what's going on. They're all afraid. And they're sitting there watching TV late at night to figure out what in the world is happening now. There's some sort of alien thing going on. And then you have this conversation that ensues. Oops. Whatever's going to happen, 
be someone there to help them. And that fills them with hope. So would you have to ask yourself is what kind of person are you? Are you the kind that sees signs, sees miracles? Or do you believe that people just get lucky? Or look at the question this way. Is it possible that there are no coincidences? An interesting film, actually. That's called Signs. S I G N S. A couple of follow-up points about that. Right. Group number two. Deep down, they feel that whatever happens, they're on their own, and that fills them with fear. I think if there's one huge theme I'm suggesting here. It's I've got to answer that question. Is God really here in the midst of this relationship? Is he there for me? Right? If, if God is not there, what's the motivation? What's the trust when things are going in a bad way? I don't know if that can be one. If I'm trusting in my spouse, they're going to let me down. Right? So I'm filled with fear if there's no hope. But then the group number one, deep down they feel that whatever happens, there will be someone there to help them. And that fills them with hope. God is with me. God will never leave me or forsake me. He is an ever-present help in time of need. So I'm okay. I'm not alone. When my spouse is not there for me as they need them to, I'm, I'm not alone. This does not mean that there will not be issues. In fact, the, the theme is, in the midst of the issues, I'm holding on to something that's bigger. I'm holding on to something that's greater to carry me through. It gives me that sense of direction. It gives me that sense of hope when I can't make sense of what's going on. Right? In a way, it's the question of, do I believe Romans 8.28, that God does work all things together for good for those who believe? Right? It's probably the biggest thematic question, and I had him cue the music there. 
as we're getting towards the end. Nice, huh? So let's return back for one more minute to the stories I talked about at the beginning of today. We've been talking about stories the whole week, seeing where we are in the stories. Today we're talking about the theme of them, right? We have, we have our ring around the rosy discussion, and actually the interpretation I threw out there has been disproven. It's not about the Black Plague. That was an interpretation that came on decades after the song originated. Most scholars agree with this. It's really about kids playing in a circle and then falling down from laughter, from joy, from fun. It harkens back to our video from a week ago where we looked at Little Miss Sunshine and the family dancing up on the stage just free and unfettered. So the question here is, how am I seeing my marriage? Am I seeing the black plague? Am I seeing the negative side? Am I going to let that become the focus? Or maybe I go, wait, I need to reframe. That's not actually the truth. The truth is, in the midst of all the dysfunction, in the midst of what's negative, we can find what's wonderful and beautiful in each other and embrace it and help fan flame into the life of that that person. I can reframe it that way. To see the story as it actually is, not what others tell it is. The world will tell us maybe marriage is an outdated institution, that it doesn't work anymore. Our lives and our selfishness will tell us this is not going to work for me, but maybe that's not the case. And then the itsy-bitsy spider with his futile efforts, maybe that's not the case as well. Right? All we know is that the rain washed him down, the sun came out, there was a second chance. And maybe in the midst of this, God is giving us a second chance, whether there are sins that have been committed that seem unforgivable, whether there's such deep pain in the relationship we don't know how to move past it, maybe the sun is coming back out and we have another chance to do this. And to sum it up, we're saying this, as we look for the direction in our lives, as we look for the direction in our marriages, are we going to trust in ourselves? Are we going to trust in our partner? Are we going to trust in Christ? Because there is a beautiful story that he is telling here. It's a story that spans years and decades and generations and whatever unit of measurement of geological time or universal time that you could think of. It's bigger than us, but we have a part in it. As we surrender to God, as we let go of the demands of what our relationship should be, we open ourselves up to be characters in the story that he is telling, to let our lives be transformed and to let the world perhaps be transformed through us and our marriages. If we can trust the author and perfecter of our faith, if we can trust the author of our story. All right, let me pray for you all. God, thank you that you have told the most beautiful story and you are telling that story in our lives. It's a story of redemption. We embrace that, we receive it, we accept it, not because of our value from what we've done, but because you've bestowed that value upon us. Help us to remember that this is the story of our marriages. Help us to remember that you will not leave us or forsake us, that even though there is trouble, you say, fear not, I have overcome the world that has that trouble. So in that, give us courage to be vulnerable and to love well and to always trust in Christ's name. Amen. All right.